Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes. To keep in touch with us, use our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, which are all at Q and Review. That's C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. Or get in touch via information at qandreview.com. That's information at C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W.com. Please like and share our podcasts and give us any constructive feedback. The Herald, Wednesday the 14th of December 2022 News. J.K. Rowling opens service for survivors of sexual violence in Edinburgh. This article is by Andrew Learmonth. J.K. Rowling has launched a new women-centred and women-delivered service for female survivors of sexual violence in Edinburgh. Beera's Place, named after the Scottish goddess of winter, has been entirely funded by the Harry Potter author and is legally permitted to exclude males under the exemptions of the 2010 Equality Act. Launched just a week before the Scottish Parliament votes on the final stage of the Gender Recognition Reform Bill, the Centre's Board of Directors is made up of critics of the plan changes, including former Scottish Labour leader Joanne Lamont. Ms Rowling told the journalist Suzanne Moore that Beera's place came after the head of one of Scotland's biggest rape crisis centres suggested bigoted rape survivors should be re-educated about transgender rights. Last year, Mridul Wadwa said people would not truly recover unless they addressed their unacceptable beliefs because therapy is political. The chief executive of Edinburgh Rape Crisis Centre told the Guilty Feminist podcast that rape survivors could reframe their trauma and have a more positive relationship with it. Ms Rowling said that suggestions that trauma needed to be reframed got to her. I was climbing the walls, she said. It's not a political thing to me. This is personal. And then after two days, I had the light bulb moment and I thought, I don't have to pace around my kitchen ranting. I can actually do something about this. And that's how it started. So here I am. The Beeras Place Board of Directors include Ms Lamont, Rona Hotchkiss, a former prison governor, Dr Margaret McCartney, an academic broadcaster and Glasgow GP, and Susan Smith, Director of For Women Scotland. The Chief Executive is Isabel Kerr, a former manager of Glasgow Rape Crisis. Ms Kerr said violence against women and girls is an issue that crosses all cultures, classes and religions. These are gendered crimes that are overwhelmingly perpetrated by men and disproportionately experienced by women. Beeras Place recognises that effective sexual violence services must be independent needs-led and provide responsive, women-centred services so that they are free from the pressure of current political agendas. 
We are committed to ensuring that our service is free, confidential and accessible to women survivors who may need it. Beerah's Place is legally permitted to exclude males under the exemptions of the 2010 Equality Act, which allows single-sex services if they are a proportionate means to achieve a legitimate end. Ms Rowling said, as a survivor of sexual assault myself, I know how important it is that survivors have the option of women-centred and women-delivered care at such a vulnerable time. Beerah's Place will offer an increase in capacity for services in the area and will, I hope, enable more women to process and recover from their trauma. The centre will open for confidential off-site assessments and appointments in the new year. The gender recognition reform legislation is currently working its way through Holyrood. It aims to reform the process by which trans people can obtain a gender recognition certificate. The new bill removes the need for medical assessment and allows someone to obtain a gender recognition certificate after six months. Some critics of the law have raised concerns that the new legislation could have an impact on the single-sex exceptions in the Equality Act and could potentially place women in danger from men who might abuse a self-identification system. Last month, Reem Al-Salem, the UN's Special Rapporteur on Violence Against Women and Girls, raised concerns that the changes could potentially open the door for violent males who identify as men to abuse the process of acquiring a gender certificate and the rights that are associated with it. This presents potential risks to the safety of women in all their diversity, she added. A number of organisations, including Rape Crisis Scotland, responded to Ms Al-Salem's letter to question her criticism. They wrote, The Equality Act allows for provision of single-sex spaces and certain exclusions where appropriate to achieve a legitimate aim. Organisations are legally obliged to take into account the Equality Act and relevant guidance when delivering their services and nothing will change by the passing of the bill with regards to that. The letter continued, most rape crisis services in Scotland provide life-saving support for women, men and non-binary people. All specialist violence against women and girls organisations have robust safeguarding procedures in place which include risk assessment at the point of service delivery. There is no rape crisis service in Scotland that requires a gender recognition certificate, where services are available to women, only women are not required to provide proof of their sex. All rape crisis services in Scotland are inclusive of trans women and have been for 15 years. In those 15 years, there has not been a single incident of anyone abusing this. This article is by Andrew Learmonth. The Herald, Wednesday the 14th of December 2022, News. 
MSPs demand answers on missing paragraphs in Calmac Ferry scandal. This article is by Tom Gordon. MSPs have demanded to know why a key section of a document about the Calmac Ferry scandal was withheld from them by the Scottish Government's Transport Agency. Holyrood's Public Audit Committee has asked Transport Scotland to supply it with the complete version of a letter sent by former Minister Derek Mackay to an SNP MSP. The committee has also asked the Quango's Interim Chief Executive, Michelle Quinn, for an explanation of the omission at your earliest opportunity. It follows a row over incomplete evidence supplied to the committee by Transport Scotland on the 28th of October, which included a letter from Mr Mackay to Stuart Macmillan in February 2015. The committee is holding an inquiry into two Calmac ferries ordered from the Ferguson Marine Yard on the Clyde in later 2015 for a fixed price of £97 million. The deal proved a disaster, leading to the yard being nationalised in 2019. The boats, known as the Glen Sanox and Hull 802, are still yet to be finished, but are so far £150 million over budget and five years late. It has already emerged that the state-owned ferry procurement body, CMAL, wanted to restart the bidding process because it had concerns about the order going to Ferguson Marine. In particular, it was worried that they could not provide a standard industry guarantee to protect taxpayers in case the work was not completed. However, Transport Scotland, under instruction from the government, pushed ahead with Mr Mackay, the then Minister for Transport, signing off the order in October 2015. The committee had asked Transport Scotland for any correspondence it had between Mr Mackay and Mr Macmillan, the Yard's local MSP, before the Yard was made preferred bidder. It emerged Mr Macmillan had asked Mr Mackay if a builder's refund guarantee was required for the contract to be awarded to Ferguson's, in an indication that ministers might not insist on one Mr Mackay replied saying that while CMAL's preference was for refund guarantees, it has on occasion taken alternative approaches, including for Ferguson's under a different owner. Although that part of Mr Mackay's reply was given to the committee by Mr Macmillan as part of his evidence, Transport Scotland's version of the same letter left it out. In today's letter to Ms Quinn, committee convener Richard Leonard said MSPs had been concerned that two paragraphs had been excluded from Transport Scotland's evidence and that no attempt has been made to correct this omission. He went on, Transport Scotland was given three weeks to return this information with the offer to contact the clerks if the deadline date presented any difficulties. In the year and a half I have been convener of the Public Audit Committee, this is the only occasion I am aware of where repeated attempts were required to establish when this information would be received. The committee would now ask you to provide a complete version 
of the former minister's letter, along with an explanation of the omission at your earliest opportunity. In a separate letter, the committee has also asked Ms Sturgeon, who gave evidence on the deal in November, for more information, including asking for any minutes or notes taken as a result of a meeting she had with former Ferguson Marine owner Jim McCall in May 2017. This article is by Tom Gordon. The Herald, Thursday the 15th of December 2022, News. Rise in interest rates looms as experts say inflation may have peaked. This article is by Ian McConnell. Experts flagged their views yesterday that UK inflation may have peaked after official data showed a sharper than expected fall last month from a 41-year high in October as petrol and second-hand car prices exerted a downward effect. However, at 10.7% in November, annual consumer prices index inflation remains more than five times the 2% target set by the Treasury for the Bank of England, which is expected to raise benchmark UK interest rates further today. A poll by Reuters has signalled an expectation among economists that base rates will be raised by a half point to 3.5%. The bank started raising base rates from their record low of 0.1% in December last year. Annual CPI inflation has been 11.1% in October and the consensus forecast in another poll of economists by Reuters was that it would have fallen to 10.9% last month. Yesterday's data from the Office for National Statistics showed petrol prices were unchanged between October and November this year, having risen by 7.2 pence per litre between the same two months of 2021. Second-hand car prices in November were down by 5.8% on the same month of 2021, compared with a year-on-year decline of 2.7% in October. Martin Beck, Chief Economic Advisor to the EY Item Club, highlighted the think tank's belief that inflation had now peaked, but warned that it could prove sticky. Mr Beck said the EY Item Club thinks October was likely the peak for inflation. Falling food commodity prices suggest food price inflation is close to its peak. Large base effects are likely to come into play for energy prices next year and weaker activity is expected to cool core inflation. Therefore, the EY Item Club expects inflation to soften next year. However, the delayed pass-through of weaker sterling and higher energy costs for businesses means the EY Item Club thinks inflation could be sticky and it could be some time before the CPI measure falls back to the 2% target. Looking ahead to today's interest rate announcement from the Bank of England, he added in November's MPC, Monetary Policy Committee meeting, The committee was under significant pressure 
to meet market expectations and restore confidence in the UK economy following the effects of the mini-budget delivering a 75 base points rates increase. The EY Item Club views November's decision as a special case and there does not appear to be anything in the inflation data to suggest the committee needs to continue with rate rises at such a pace. Therefore, the EY Item Club expects the MPC will pivot to a 50 basis points rates increase. Alpesh Paleja, lead economist at the Confederation of British Industry, said the fall in inflation last month supports our view that we're likely past its peak. We expect inflation to continue following gradually over the year ahead as global price pressures ease and an economic downturn takes some of the heat out of price setting. Despite this, costs and price pressures will likely remain very high in the near term, putting continued pressure on vulnerable households and businesses. Government support has been considerable already, but with the UK set to fall into a recession, targeted measures must be extended to those that need them most. In particular, businesses need clarity on a targeted extension to the Energy Bill Relief Scheme, which should be aimed at supporting heavy energy users. Stockbroker A.J. Bell warned that the cost of living was still uncomfortably high in spite of the slight fall in inflation. A.J. Bell financial analyst Danny Hewson said food prices have risen for 16 consecutive months and perhaps the memo that inflation has peaked has got stuck in postal disruption because here it's still heading up. In fact, the last time we experienced this kind of change at the supermarket till was 1977. For families faced with festive expectation, the next few weeks are going to be fraught. She added, even with government intervention, energy bills are draining household budgets and there will be plenty of people already worrying about what next year might bring and the impact further increases to our bills will have on the inflation number the Bank of England is working so hard to stamp down. This article is by Ian McConnell. The Herald, Thursday the 15th of December 2022. News. SNP attempt to amend Scotland Act easily defeated in the Commons. This article is by Andrew Learmont. An SNP bid to amend the Scotland Act to give Holyrood the power to hold a second independence referendum without the consent of Westminster has been defeated. The party had attempted to use one of the historical quirks of the Commons to take control of Parliament's order paper on January the 10th to allow them to pass legislation to unlock Westminster's denial of democracy. Given that the SNP has just 44 of the Parliament's 650 MPs, the Wees never had much chance of success. In the end, it was defeated by 265 votes to 42. The Tories voted against, the SNP voted for, and Labour abstained.
The attempt to change the law that established the Scottish Parliament comes almost a month after the Supreme Court ruled unequivocally that MSPs could not organise a vote on the Constitution unilaterally. Opening the debate, the SNP's Constitutional Affairs spokesperson, Tommy Shepherd, told MPs, The polity that we live in the United Kingdom is a multinational state, made up and based upon serial acts of union that have given it quite a unique character, and it is something which up until very recently we had assumed required on the consent of the people in the component nations of the United Kingdom to be part of. We now have a situation following the Supreme Court judgment where it seems that that is not the case, that it is not possible for one group of people in one nation of the United Kingdom to consider reviewing the relationship with the others without their consent. That means that the idea of it being a voluntary union of nations is dead in the water until such time as the law is clarified or fixed. The SNP's Commons motion was, he added, an attempt to clarify and fix the British Constitution. He said the debate was absolutely about the real issues that are facing families in this country right here, right now. Tory Scotland Office Minister John Lamont said that despite the new leader in Stephen Flynn, the SNP were still pushing division and grievance at every time. He told the Commons the United Kingdom is the most successful political and economic union the world has ever seen. In challenging times, we are stronger together. We are better prepared to deal with any crisis, particularly an issue on the scale of the energy crisis or the very thing that created the energy crisis, Vladimir Putin's awful war in Ukraine. In these volatile times, I continue to believe that the last thing people need is greater uncertainty. This is a time for unity behind a common purpose, not division that would split us apart. Labour Shadow Scotland Secretary Ian Murray bemoaned the SNP forcing another debate on independence in the chamber. He told MPs, I would say what a pleasure it is to be involved in this debate today, but that wouldn't be entirely true. Yet again, when the SNP get precious time to use on any issue, they wish they choose this one again. It's like the famous film Groundhog Day, where Bill Murray relives the same day over and over again. But in this place, we relive the same debate over and over again, every single time they choose the same debate topic. He described the debate as a stunt. They know it will fail, but creates a grievance that they thrive off, he added. Kenny McCaskill, who defected from the SNP to Alex Salmon's Alaba, said he would back the motion, but accused the First Minister of not doing enough to secure independence. I hope that members on the SNP benches will support the call for an independence convention. After all, it was a call made and supported by the First Minister in February 2020. We're now approaching three years on. It's time that convention was delivered. He said such a convention was needed to drive home when this motion fails and is defeated tonight that it's not this parliament, 
but the elected representatives of the people of Scotland, who are the democratically elected voice for the people of Scotland. The former Justice Secretary said the SNP should support the call for a plebiscite election, one that could be triggered next October and deliver us a referendum, the no ifs, no buts referendum that we were promised by members on the SNP benches. This article is by Andrew Learmont. The Herald Scotland, Thursday 15th of December 2022. Opinion. The SNP will raise your taxes. We should thank them. By Rebecca McQuillan, Senior Features Writer. Who would want to be John Swinney this morning? There has been strong speculation all week that he will stand up in Parliament today and announce tax rises, right in the middle of a cost-of-living crisis. It should come with a health warning. This will hurt. But if Scotland is to maintain its proud status as the most progressive part of the UK, then there's not much sign of a better alternative. No one is unaffected by the rise in cost of everything. Even some people who appear fairly affluent on paper are rationing their energy use and stressing about food bills. 200,000 people in Scotland with fixed-rate mortgages are facing a hike of £3,000 in their annual costs due to higher interest rates. The Scottish government snaffling more of their earnings will definitely hurt. Even so, some form of higher taxation is likely. Lowering the threshold for the top rate of tax from 150000 to 125000 as Jeremy Hunt has done for the rest of the UK, would only raise £40 million in Scotland at the very most, says the Fraser of Allender Institute. So we can expect something more. Mr Swinney may announce one or more of the following. Tax rises by stealth through freezing or reducing the higher and top income tax thresholds, to draw more people into paying those rates, introducing another tax ban between the higher and top rates, and going the whole hog by slapping an extra penny or two on the higher rate and above. He is unlikely to relish any of it, but we've left the land of popular choices behind and are now deep in tough decisions territory. A recession is upon us that will last one year or even two. Hardship is increasing, public sector pay increases are putting pressure on inflexible budgets, and the Scottish Government cannot borrow like the UK Government can. The Scottish Government has already had to cut spending this financial year. The choice from here is tartan austerity or tax rises. For the next two financial years, consequentials from the Chancellor's autumn statement will offset the impact of inflation on the Scottish budget, according to the Fraser of Allender. So, raising taxes would be a means of trying to accommodate higher public sector pay while helping hard-pressed services and increasing support for the worst off. So, will Mr Sweeney's budget pass the fairness test? Well, public sector wage growth, UK-wide, has been lagging behind the private sector and recruitment and retention issues are already so severe in some professions that allowing real-term public sector pay to slide significantly could be disastrous. Decent pay awards that take account of inflation mean more stable public services. When considering tax rises to help pay for it, though, 
ministers will know that private and voluntary sector pay is also falling in real terms, and in a recession, the situation could worsen. Outside the public sector, workers also tend to have lower job security and worse pensions, so a balance must be struck that seemed to be fair. We'll see, but what's clear is that widely supported progressive Scottish policies will falter and fail unless there's more cash, and those on the lowest incomes will suffer the most. The Deputy First Minister has said his priorities are tackling child poverty, delivering net zero and developing sustainable public services. Well, good. These don't seem to be such high priorities at Westminster. One huge spending commitment the Scottish Government has taken on is new Social Security benefits, the most significant being the Scottish Child Payment for low-income families, worth £25 a week per child under 16. It's a direct, tangible attempt to tackle child poverty and is forecast to cost £500 million a year. The Scottish Child Payment reflects a sincere commitment to tackle deprivation, but also has a political dimension in projecting the SNP's central idea that this government, and by extension independence, is really about social justice. But this is not a government that has shown a strong appetite for raising taxes to pay for such policies, having done so minimally in the past. It has been accused of sounding lefty, but cleaving repeatedly to the centre ground. So this current crisis has created a real test of its true nature. Tax rises will show that the SNP is prepared to make some of the tough choices that would be necessary in an independent Scotland to keep alive the vision of a progressive Scotland in financially challenging times. How far will Mr Swinney go? The need is so very great. Food banks face unprecedented demand. Education budgets are being cut. The health service is an A&E. 43% of people can't heat their homes to a comfortable level, according to Consumer Scotland. An anemic budget announcement that tried to avoid spooking the horses in suburbia while allowing poverty to deepen would be a credibility buster. It would also be just wrong. Tax rises on the wealthiest do, of course, risk unintended consequences. This is the real dilemma for the Scottish Government. It wants to capture more wealth from top earners, but, as the Office of Budget Responsibility warned this week, could end up losing all of it if those wealthy few chose to domicile themselves south of the border. That's why asking a bit more of higher earners, not just the very wealthiest, is now a real possibility. There are also other taxes to consider. Everyone agrees council tax is regressive, but the SNP haven't reformed it due to nervousness about increasing taxes on Middle Scotland. There are now renewed calls for it to be replaced with a land tax, based on land value or a proportional property tax, where people pay a proportion of their home value each year. More immediately, the IPPR think tank reckoned raising council tax on property bans FG&H by £100 a year would net £69 million. Wealth taxes, a frequent flyer levy, tourist and carbon taxes are also back under discussion. Anything, in fact, that could bring in a bit more cash. One day when prosperity returns and the benefits bill falls, tax levels can be revised down again. 
not least because ministers need options for when the next crisis hits. But right now, the state of public finances calls for radical action. This article was written by Rebecca McQuillan. The Herald Scotland, Thursday 15th of December 2022 Opinion The UK is in dire need of a reset by Teddy Jameson, Senior Features Writer Turns out the Game of Thrones was right after all. Winter has come. Snow, ice and strikes. Welcome to Christmas 2022. Don't bother sending any Christmas cards or try to catch a train to visit the in-laws. There's every possibility that neither the cards nor you will make it. It's the winter of discontent. The sequel. In 1979, the bin men and the undertakers did for James Callaghan's government. Will the RMT and the posties do for Rushy Sunak? Frankly, we can only hope so. Because the UK badly needs a reset. Our transport system, our NHS... Our postal service are all failing. These strikes are not only about pay. Our rivers are full of sewage, in England and Wales in particular, but it's happening in Scotland too. The UK faces the highest energy bills in the world. Northern Ireland doesn't have a functioning government. The increasing need for emergency parcels from food banks nationwide should be a national scandal. Crisis? What crisis? Just look around. The zombie government we have in Westminster is, it should be clear by now, not in any way fit to face the challenges we face. Many of those challenges, after all, are the result of the policies it has enacted over the last decade, from austerity to Brexit. If the Tories had any shame, they would have resigned en masse after the debacle that was Liz Truss's truncated premiership. But on they trudge, trying to score petty political points on the strikes and making speeches about immigration, attacking the European Court of Human Rights and engaging in voter suppression at the cost of £180 million over the next decade. Culture wars and union baiting. It's all they're good for. Can we really take two more years of this? There is no sense that Rishi Sinak has any new ideas to bring to the table. The last few years have seen the Tories veer from chaotic to catastrophic. It is a party in dire need of reinvention. The truth is the Conservatives have been putting their needs ahead of the electorate for years now. The Labour government in 1979 was a minority administration in a constant firefight to keep power. Despite its health majority, you could say the same of this current Tory administration, a government that is just getting through the day for the most part as the Prime Minister tries to placate the more egregious colleagues on the right of the party. He's not as desperate to seek approving headlines via spurious policy announcements as Boris Johnson was, but he's not against the idea. In office but not in power, as a former Chancellor of the Exchequer said of one of Sunak's predecessors. The best thing that could happen to Britain is a general election. In the spring... Let's not wait until 2024. A chance to reboot. We need it desperately. If the polls are to be believed, that would result in a Labour government. We can debate the merits of that outcome, but it can't be worse than the one we have. A fresh start could, at the very least, bring some of the ongoing debates to a head. In Northern Ireland, the prospect of a Labour government 
might concentrate the minds of the DUP. In Scotland, if the election is indeed seen as a de facto poll on independence, then we might have a clearer notion of the will of the people rather than the ongoing indiref or not debate that dominates politics here. Or maybe not. An election isn't a panacea. There will be no miracles here. We will still be facing a cost-of-living crisis, huge energy bills, recession, the sharpest drop in living standards on record, the poisoning of political debate by social media extremists. But the alternative is we drift along with a government that is not really interested in fixing things because that requires effort and clear thinking and it seems incapable of offering either of these attributes. This government is in the winter of its life. The rest of us need spring to come. This article was written by Teddy Jameson. Herald on the 16th of December and the Voices section. Bringing Ghost Woodlands Back to Life Can Help Us Achieve Net Zero by Shireen Chambers. Scotland is internationally renowned for its diverse, rich nature and landscapes. The capacity that our land holds to deliver nature-based solutions to climate change, specifically through increased tree coverage, is significant. The Scottish Government has set out its ambitions to increase Scotland's forest and woodlands to cover 21% by 2032 as part of its targets to reach net zero emissions by 2045. If this is to be achieved, we need innovative solutions. As an organisation that champions innovative approaches to improve ecological resilience and increase carbon stores, we're always exploring ways to use our rich natural assets for the benefit of communities, wildlife and the planet. I'm proud that Scotland is leading the UK on tree planting, creating more than 10,000 hectares of new woodland in 12 months. But tree planting is only part of the nature-based solution puzzle. Natural woodland regeneration, letting woodland grow back naturally, is one of the most efficient and low-cost approaches to locking up carbon. One type of natural woodland that could offer part of the solution is ghost woodland. Those relics or ghosts of former woods have existed for centuries, yet less than 20% of the canopy remains. This is essentially an ancient canopy that's dying on its feet. Even so, they are extremely important habitats for biodiversity with rare insects, fungi and flowers. Once identified, ghost woodlands can be rediscovered through natural regeneration into thriving habitats. And unlike many woodland creation projects, there's also, uh, there is no need to purchase new land. But many of these woodlands in waiting are undocumented or under threat from invasive species or overgrazing from native animals. That's why we need to act now, so we don't lose the potential of our ghost woodlands forever. At Future Woodlands of Scotland, we support landowners and farmers to create and regenerate native woodlands through our funded programmes, research and innovation. We are supporting cultivation of native woodland through our Future Woodlands Fund, with current applications totaling 1,000 hectares. And in the past six months, we have seen an increase in the number of applications to validate and restore ghost woodlands. In recognition of the importance of these woodlands, we recently tested a methodology to protect and regenerate ghost woodlands with Scottish forestry and the Woodland Carbon Code. Through 
Future Woodlands Scotland, land managers and farmers can apply for funding support and generate carbon credits through the restoration of ghost woodlands. These in turn provide them with a long-term source of revenue to cover the ongoing costs of nurturing a woodlands uh, back to life. This initiative was made possible through our Future Woodlands Fund, a BP-funded programme to help land managers overcome financial and cultural barriers to deliver nature-based solutions to climate change and social benefits across Scotland. With climate change playing an increasingly important role in the decline of biodiversity, bringing ghost woodlands back to life is, we believe, a key nature-based solution that we all should get behind. To find out more about the Ghost Woodlands funding programme, visit the Future Woodlands Scotland website. That's by Shireen Chambers, who is Chief Executive of Future Woodlands Scotland. The Glasgow Herald on the 16th of December and Voices section. Despite Channel tragedy, more desperate people are heading this way by Michael Settle. It was some of a second people in the water everywhere, screaming. The chilling words of the skipper of a fishing vessel who, with his crew, rescued 30 people, including 12 lone migrant children from the icy waters of the English Channel this week after the overcrowded boat they hoped would ferry them to safety and a new life sank. Sadly, four of the migrants never made it. One teenager. Drones were being used to see if anyone else had perished. This latest tragedy came almost a year after 27 migrants died, making the same perilous channel crossing and underlines the desperation of many who put their lives and those of unaccompanied children at stake. Just as, just as before, Rishi Sunak announced a five-point plan to try and break the criminal's business model of smuggling people between the continent and Britain. Politically, the PM knows he is nowhere more vulnerable to Keir Starmer's charge of being weak than on the migrant issue. One Conservative insider noted, we need to show people we are still in charge and we can still do things. Indeed, it's not just Labour, which is giving Sunak some stick, but also many Tory MPs, particularly those representing red wall seats, who know the channel crossings are a major source of disquiet for constituents who blanch at the £7 million daily cost to the taxpayer of accommodating them within a process that is clearly broken. In the comments, PM told MPs enough was enough and pledged that finally he was going to get a grip. Tough but fair was his catchphrase. But there is no easy solution to this and every individual opens itself up to criticism in some regard. Every individual policy, that is. While complaining about the Tory government's lack of grip and repeating its deep opposition to the highly contentious Rwanda gimmick, it seems Labour is in general agreement, backing the need for some comprehensive action that is a multifaceted and better coordinated approach to cracking down on the people smugglers. After all, Starmer needs those red wall seats to form a Commons majority. The PM's plan involves more money and more staff, plus better liaison with the French government alongside a new intelligence gathering and enforcement's operational command. The contentious use of hotels to house asylum seekers will end with people moving into disused holiday parks and surplus military sites. 
The PM also pledged to end the backlog of asylum claims by the end of 2023 with the help of hundreds more caseworkers and overhauling the application system. This will be essential to easing pressures. Addressing the exponential increase in Albanian migrants, there will be a new agreement with Tirana to return thousands of unfounded claimants, a similar position to many other European countries. Generally, Westminster will set an annual quota of asylum seekers allowed to enter Britain, and the new laws will be introduced next year to make it unambiguously clear if you enter the UK illegally, i.e. in a small boat across the channel, you should not be able to remain here. Which brings us to the Rwanda policy, which has been held up by legal challenges, but a court decision is expected next week, which should be interesting. Indeed, this week, there was a failed bid, backed by 69 Tory MPs and supported by the millionaire speechmaker himself, Boris Johnson, although he didn't vote on it, to get Britain to opt out of the European Convention on Human Rights. Conservative backbencher Jonathan Gullis, the bill's proposer, claimed it was ensure Westminster and not unaccountable foreign judges in Europe would have the final say on the UK's asylum system, thus restoring our great nation's territorial integrity. But Sunak, who during the Tory leadership contest pledged he would not allow the ECHR to inhibit our ability to properly control our borders, argued against the Gullis bill, insisting it was unnecessary because new legislation would mean people who arrived illegally in Britain would be quickly removed. We'll see. The SNP's Alison Toulis denounced Gullis' legislation as an offensive, grubby, dangerous wee bill. One has to ask if people, often with young children, are willing to get into a crowded, flimsy dinghy in freezing temperatures at night what government could possibly could deter them from doing so. This week, Suella Braverman, the Home Secretary, who previously courted controversy by branding the numbers crossing the channel an invasion, insisted there were limits, telling MPs there were 100 million people around the globe who would like to leave their country of residence and potentially come to the UK. That is simply not possible, and... Therefore, we do need an element of control combined, she said, with compassion and generosity. Earlier this week, the SNP's shiny new leader, Stephen Flynn, challenged the PM, arguing the solutions to the current situation were the establishment of safe and legal routes to Britain for asylum seekers. The PM pointed out how in the last few years more than 450,000 places have been offered to people from Afghanistan, Syria, Hong Kong and most recently Ukraine. And yet with these specifically targeted countries, there doesn't appear to be a safe and legal route. Underlying the potential difficulties, some point out that even if you did open the generalised safe and legal routes, chances are they would become inundated with asylum seekers as well as those who aren't but claiming to be. So numbers would rise, not fall. So far in 2022, some 45,000 people have crossed the channel in small boats, well up on the 28,500 who did so last year. Despite this week's tragedy, hundreds if not thousands more may try to do so before the year's end. While ministers earnestly try to tackle the intractable issue of channel crossings and MPs trade political blows over numbers and about taking back control of our borders, 
Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, made a powerful point. This week's trailable tragedy was, as Christmas approaches, a timely reminder that debates about asylum seekers are not about statistics, but precious human lives. That was by Michael Settle. This is from the Herald on Monday the 19th of December 2022. This is from the news section. North Sea Oil. Operators fined as part of emissions crackdown. This article is by Jody Harrison. Three major oil and gas firms have been fined a total of £265,000 for actions that have impacted the industry's efforts to cut back on emissions, a regulatory body has said. The North Sea Transition Authority, NSTA, previously known as the Oil and Gas Authority, cracks down on behaviour that risks the industry reaching its net zero targets. Inspectors revealed UK-based Inquest was fined £150,000 for flaring an excess 262 tonnes of gas on the Magnus Field in the North Sea between November 30th and December 1st last year, despite knowing it did not have the necessary consent in place. The NSTA's flaring and venting guidance aims to eliminate unnecessary or wasteful flaring and venting of gas, with an aim for zero routine flaring and venting by 2030. This is in line with the central obligation of the NSTA strategy, which includes a requirement for industry to assist the business and energy secretary in meeting the net zero target. Norway-based Equinor was also fined £65,000 for flaring at least 348 tonnes of CO2 above the amount permitted on the Barnacle Field, located in the North Sea, between June and November 2020. Ola Morton, Anistad of Equinor, said the find relates to an administrative breach on the cross-border field. He said, Not a cubic centimetre of gas from Barnacle has been flared in the UK and not a gram of CO2 has been emitted without being accounted for. Barnacle is developed with a single well drilled from the Statfjord B platform on the Norwegian side of the median line, he added. Any flaring from the field therefore happens and is accounted for in Norwegian waters. The flaring on Statfjord was within Norwegian permits, but technically the field was operating outside the UK flaring consent for a period of four months due to the missing logs. Meanwhile, Spirit Energy has been fined £50,000 for exceeding the maximum allowed production volumes from two fields over three years. The NSTA said producing too much oil and gas can reduce the overall long-term production from a reservoir to the detriment of the UK security of supply. So it is vital that when an operator wants to raise production, it applies for a new consent so its new plan can be assessed. A spokesperson for Spirit Energy said, After identifying the circumstances which gave rise to the sanction, Spirit reported them to the NSTA and fully cooperated with their investigation. Spirit also conducted its own separate internal review. Both investigations have now concluded with Spirit implementing all resulting recommendations with a view to ensuring its future compliance with production consents. An Enquest spokesman said, Enquest can confirm it has been sanctioned by the North Sea Transition Authority for a breach of flaring consent that occurred in the group's Magnus asset in November 2021. The NSTA recognised that Enquest made contact promptly and maintained a constructive dialogue over the course of the incident. Enquest took immediate steps to shut production down on December 1st, 2021, until authority to restart the NSTA 
was received in writing on December 3, 2021. The regulator also recognised that the group had fully cooperated with the inquiry and investigation that followed. The company also conducted its own internal review to determine the cause of the failure and to prevent any future failure to comply. Notwithstanding the above, Enquest accepts NSTA's sanctions and will meet its obligations to pay the financial penalty as required by the regulator. Jane DeLozzi, NSTA Director of Regulation, said the NSTA is committed to supporting the UK's energy security and lowering greenhouse gas emissions, including through the use of our robust consenting procedures, which drive down flaring and venting. We are encouraged by recent improvements on emissions and will take action to ensure this vital work is not undermined by companies who fail to meet their obligations. NSTA said operators such as Enquest and Equinor must follow a clear process to apply for consent to flare or vent gas. The regulatory body said progress has been encouraging with overall emissions from North Sea oil and gas production activities down 21.5% between 2018 and 2021. Last year, flaring on the UK continental shelf, the region of water surrounding the United Kingdom, was at a record low, having been cut by 20% to 25.8 billion cubic feet of gas, a reduction equivalent to the annual gas demand of 130,000 UK homes. That article was by Jodie Harrison. This is from the Herald on Monday the 19th of December 2022. This is from the news section. Three ScotGov controlled airports shut due to pay dispute. This article is by Martin Williams. Three of Scotland's state-controlled lifeline airports are shut today as workers walk out on the first day of strike action amid a dispute over pay. The facilities on the outer Hebridean islands of Barra and Benbecula, as well as Sunbra Airport in Shetland, will be out of action on Thursday as a result of the action from Unite Union members. Passengers have been urged to check journeys before travelling to any of Scotland's most remote airports, while workers undertake industrial action in a dispute over pay. Members of Unite, the union across 11 airports under HIAL, including those working in fire and rescue, security and administration are involved in the strike over voting 73.5% to back it. Bosses at Scottish Government-controlled Highlands and Islands Airports Limited also confirmed earlier this month that Stornoway Airport on the Isle of Lewis will be open from 1pm to 7.45pm during the strikes and Kirkwall Airport in Orkney will open from 7.15am to 1pm and only for inter-island flights. The remaining HIAL airports in Campbelltown, Dundee, Inverness, Islay, Tyree and Wick, John O'Groats will operate as usual. HIAL bosses said they were disappointed in the decision to go ahead with the strike, but the Union Unite said a tabled 5% rise was unacceptable. After the vote, HIAL Managing Director Ingalls Lyon said the demand from the Union were unrealistic. Ingalls Lyon, HIAL's Managing Director said, we deeply regret the disruption and inconvenience to our airline partners, passengers and local communities that this action will cause. Against the backdrop of unprecedented financial pressures, we presented an enhanced pay offer to colleagues that maximised the flexibility within the Scottish Government's pay policy, which HIAL is bound by. We recognise the challenges colleagues face due to inflationary pressures and the cost of living crisis. However, the claim for a rise of at least RPI is unrealistic and any further offer must be met from cost savings 
within existing budgets, we will continue dialogue with the trade unions in an attempt to avoid further industrial action. Shauna Wright, Unite Industrial Officer, said, Unite does not accept that HIAL, a private limited company wholly owned by the Scottish Government, does not have the ability to increase the offer. Claims previously made that it is bound by funding obligations set by the Scottish Government will not placate our members or settle this dispute. Unite is therefore calling on the Scottish Government as a matter of urgency to meet with us, the workers and HIAL, and to put forward additional funding that will improve pay, terms and conditions in the Highlands and Islands and bring an end to this dispute. HIAL had been at the centre of industrial action threats over a long-running dispute over plans to centralise some of its air traffic control operations. HIAL had been pushing ahead with plans to relocate air traffic work to one remote site in Inverness, despite fears from the union prospect that public safety was at risk. Proposals for a single remote tower centre, said to be a UK first, were first mooted four years ago as part of HIAL plans to future-proof its operations with an estimated £28 million investment over the next 10 to 15 years. The union also raised concerns that it would put almost 59 jobs at risk. The disputed end after HIAL said earlier this year that the plan no longer formed part of its proposed modernisation of air traffic control. The Scottish Government-owned company was to prepare a new business case to present to Transport Scotland for approval. In October last year, prospect members suspended all industrial action started in January 2020 to allow the further talks with HIAL. During the dispute, the union argued the relocation of jobs from Stornoway and Lewis, Sunburn and Shetland and Kirkwall Orkney would have a damaging impact on island communities. That article was by Martin Williams. The Herald, Sunday the 18th of December 2022, from the sports section. Argentina win World Cup on penalties after incredible guitar final against France. Sports Online. Lionel Messi is celebrating a dream, a career-defining World Cup triumph as Argentina won the most dramatic final in history on penalties after Kylian Mbappe's hat-trick had kept holders France alive. After 63 matches and a thrilling month of action, Sunday's breathless final was the wildest conclusion anyone could have imagined to the first finals held in the Middle East and Arab world. Messi came to Qatar looking to crown a glittering career by leading Argentina to a third World Cup triumph and managed just that after a staggering 3-3 draw ending in a 4-2 shootout victory against France. Emiliano Martinez denied Kingsley Coman before Aurelien Chu Ameni failed with his effort, with Gonzalo Montiel striking the decider to spark wild celebrations at Lucille Stadium. Messi converted his effort in the shootout, having opened the scoring on Sunday with a first-half penalty that was quickly complemented by Angel Di Maria's fine goal against Mick France, only for Mbappe to spark them to life. The 23-year-old scored twice in 97 seconds to take the match beyond 90 minutes and became the second player to score a final hat-trick when cancelling out what had looked to be an extra-time winner by Argentina's captain. But this was Messi's final. This was Messi's tournament, one that ended with him lifting the trophy aloft at the same ground where they suffered a humiliating loss to Saudi Arabia 
just 26 days ago. The 35-year-old's fifth and final appearance at this stage ended in glory as he captained them to their first World Cup triumph since the late great Diego Maradona did so in 1986. It was a blockbuster ending to one of the most controversial World Cups in history, with Qatar's treatment of migrant workers and criminalisation of same-sex relationships among the key issues. FIFA president Gianni Infantino labelled it the best ever. The Human Rights Watch's Minky Warden says it will be remembered as the most expensive sporting event ever and the most deadly. The organisers have largely kept quiet throughout the tournament that ended with a star-studded crowd joining the Argentina fans that have turned Qatar sky blue over the last month. Their team flew out of the blocks in La Salle and looked up to the flight against jittery France, whose poor start was punished midway through the first half. Di Maria brilliantly beat Usain Dembele and hit the deck as a France forward attempted to halt him, leading referee Simon Marcianac to point to the spot. Messi stepped up and fired into the bottom right-hand corner as Hugo Lloris went the wrong way, and things got worse for France in the 36th minute. Alexis McAllister played on to Messi and darted forwards. The skipper sent a beautiful flick to Julian Alvarez, who put the Brighton midfielder through to send a low first-hand cross to the far post for Di Maria to score. Didier Deschamps responded by bringing on Marcus Thruman and Randall Colo Manani, and the fuming Oliver Giroud made way, as did Dembele, as France failed to muster a first-half shot. The match looked over as Argentina continued on top. Rodrigo de Paul saw a volleyed effort saved, and Loris denied Alvarez, with France taking until the 68th minute to register any shot. The final appeared to be petering out, only for Nicolas Otamendi's overzealous defending to give France a chance from the spot. Marciniak awarded a penalty for the foul on Colo Muyani, and then Bappe beat Martinez with an 80-minute goal that sparked an astonishing turnaround. Coleman dispossessed Messi at the start of a move that ended with 23-year-old meeting a return ball from Colo Muyani with a fizzing no-strike past Martinez, an amazing hit, a remarkable moment. Thuman was booked for a dive in the box as France sought a late winner, with Mbappe trying his best and Messi seeing a shot stopped before extra time. That article was by Sports Online. From the Herald Scotland, Monday the 19th of December 2022, from the Opinion section, has BBC's Coonsburg been a match for Marr on Sunday show front? By Alison Rowett, Senior Politics and Features Writer. There was one word the host of Sunday with Lord Coonsburg tried hard to avoid yesterday. Extraordinary. Like unprecedented and unparalleled, the E-word, as applies to this year's events, deserves a rest. She almost made it only for the word to sneak into the closing monologue anyway. How else to describe a year of three Prime Ministers the death of a monarch, war in Ukraine and much else. The Commons and the Scottish Parliament are heading into recess this week, taking the Sunday politics shows with them. Not everyone was ready to switch on the out-of-office reply just yet though. 
After a week of strikes and more in the way, it fell to Olivia Dowden, as Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, to tour the studios for the UK government. The Prime Minister had already set the tone with a piece in the sun on Sunday, insisting he would not give, on it, give in in public sector pay. Mr Dowden repeated the off-cited government claim that settling the various disputes in union terms would cost £28 billion or £1,000 for every household. Kunzberg wanted to know how the figure had been worked out. So began a basic arithmetic test which Mr Dowden was determined not to fail. At one point he said the government may even be underestimating the cost of an across-the-board settlement. What I can tell you is our number is justified in the basis of thinking the inflation number, which is what the unions are asking for, and projecting it forward to next year, he said. He denied the figure was inaccurate, adding, I spent a lot of yesterday and the day before discussing exactly these numbers. These are robust numbers. On Times Radio, he said it would not be responsible to bow to aggressive action from strike leaders. People across the private sector are getting about 4%, he said. Why should it be the case that some unions are able to push their claims ahead of others? That's why we have this independent process and why we're determined to stick with it. So we'll be reasonable with this, but people need to appreciate we'll be, we will be resolute. It was Kunzberg's last programme of the year before the show returns on January the 8th. In the best traditions of the football season, it seems the right moment for a half-time review. The September launch proved memorable for all the wrong reasons when the comedian, Joe Lysett, pranked the show live on the air by pretending to be a fan of Liz Truss. Much embarrassment ensued. To give the programme its due, it included the Lysett fiasco in its own mini-review of the year. The show recovered and set about fulfilling the primary mission of any Sunday programme, get headlines on the day and fill Monday's papers. Kunzberg's questioning has been tough but fair. Although perhaps not as competitive as her predecessor, Andrew Marr, she is persistent. There have been no major tussles yet, but give it time. Marr had the job for 16 years. His successor has yet to reach six months. In the meantime, the show has had some remarkable moments, including an interview with Nicola Sturgeon in which Scotland's first minister said she detested the Tories and everything they stood for. There was more drama when Michael Gove tore into Liz Trussie's tax plans. Both were in the studio, Gove in the panel, and the intervention kicked off a nightmare week for the government at its party conference in Birmingham. The interview with Ms Sturgeon aside, the show has been light in Scottish government coverage, inevitable perhaps given BBC Scotland's The Sunday Show airs immediately after. The BBC Scotland show is sticking with its two-for-one format, with the first half hour in television and the rest on radio. It is still a gado, neither one thing nor the other. The television show deserves an hour. We should leave time for more interviews with UK government ministers instead of relying on what has just been said in Kunzberg's show. Filmed reports appear to have gone from the Scottish programme and there is no time for arts, international stories or much else. Yesterday's show had a rare treat in having the main interviewee, John Twinney, live and in the studio. It makes all the difference. The chat flows quicker, is not as stilted and there is less chance of gremlins striking. If Santa could grant one wish for the news year, it would be fewer interviews via laptop and more in person. It has been fun of a sort seeing the various ministers' spare rooms, but but as with the word extraordinary, enough's enough. And that article is by Alison Rowett. From the Herald Scotland, 
Monday the 19th of December 2022, from the opinion section, issue of the day, the rise of second-hand shopping this festive season, report by Maureen Sugden. In these trying times, it seems this Christmas is to be the first major second-hand festive season, as under pressure Brits to keep a tight hold on the purse strings as part of a continued shift towards toward the trend this year. How so? Early shopping figures for the festive season show consumers are opting for the pre-loved market more so than ever before at this time of year, with data from eBay alone showing around 52% are opting for previously owned or refurbished items. In all, around 23.3 million of us are planning to gift at least one second-hand gift this year. It's changing times. Of those surveyed in the gifting used poll, 60% said they were more than happy to receive a used gift up from 45% back in 2020 when the survey first ran. It's a rising trend. The shift to second-hand purchasing has accelerated during the surging cost of living crisis this year, with research by eBay ads finding consumers have increasingly been turning to second-hand goods to suit their own needs. A survey in the summer of a 1,000 consumers found a fifth were buying more such items in order to save money. But there's more to it. It's not just related to finance, but sustainability, with 49% of those polled by MPB, the online platform for buying and selling used camera equipment, saying they cared about the sustainability too and the impact on the environment of heightened consumerism. Once upon a time, there may have been a stigma attached to the concept of gifting second-hand items, but again, the survey found only 21% would be embarrassed to gift pre-loved goods. Take a breath. MPB is calling on consumers to pause considering an act this year amongst the hubbub and against the background of inflationary pressures, urging shoppers to pause and consider before buying and think of second-hand as an option at least. It's not really surprising. According to a report by the New Economics Foundation, 30 million people in the UK will be unable to afford a decent standard of living by the time the current parliament ends in 2024 amid surging prices and below inflation increases in, in earnings. It's a second-hand movement. Matt Barker, founder and CEO of MPB, said, Given increasing environmental concerns around overconsumption, alongside the rising pressure on household income, it's unsurprising that many of us are looking for alternatives to simply buying new, and it's brilliant to see that the perceived stigma around gifting and purchasing used items is declining. Overall, buying and selling used is a win for your wallet and the planet alike, and putting more items into the circular economy is a win for the next owner too. While savvy shoppers are catching on to the circular behaviour, there are so many people still out of the loop, and we would encourage them to join the used movement. It's good enough for the royals. Just last week, the Queen Consort revealed she is a thrifty shopper who has bagged a bargain in a charity shop when she visited a unique organisation helping the homeless. Camilla has been a patron of the Emma's UK since 2006 and has toured many of its communities across the country. Speaking to the charity's head of business, Rachel Burton, she added, I know, with all these shops, they never give me enough time to look around. All the furniture is so useful. I've picked up some nice pieces. And that report was by Maureen Sugden. From the Herald Scotland, Tuesday the 20th of December 2022, from the news section, 
Ferguson Marine CEO asked about lost £130 million of taxpayers', taxpayers ferry money by Martin Williams. The head of nationalised shipyard firm Ferguson Marine has been asked to account for how £128.25 million of public money meant to be used to build two lifeline ferries was actually spent. They come, the firm has come under fire for admitting they cannot trace where the money had gone as the cost of the ferries has soared to £340 million while delays in their completion are running to over five years. Inquiries with the company into the ferry building scandal by Scotland's Auditor General Stephen Boyle failed to uncover what happened to the money. He has said existing records relating to transactions were not organised or categorised. Public Spending Watchdogs Audit Scotland have also admitted that it was unable to trace how a Scottish Government £30 million loan to shipbuilding firm Fergus Marine Limit, Engineering Limited, FMEL, was spent. David Tideman, Chief Executive of the now nationalised Ferguson Marine, Port Glasgow, has stated that they have not sought to evaluate old files because they do not add value to the planning or budgeting work still needed to complete the vessels. At the centre of the continuing row is the awarding of the contract to Tycoon Jim McCall's FMEL in October 2015, four years before it fell into administration after a dispute with state-controlled ferries owner Caledonia Maritime Assets Limited, CMAL, over the construction of the ferries under the fixed-price contract. The Scottish Government pushed ahead to take full control of the shipyard company as Mr McCall blamed repeat design changes by CMAL for the issues in building the vessels. Now Mr Tideman has been asked to come up with answers over what happened to the money. Richard Leonard, convener of the Public Audit Committee, which is investigating the ferry tobacco, has written to him asking for them to account for £240 million that has been spent on the two ferries. Of this, £128.25 million is paid to FMEL. The Auditor General has said that a further £110.3 million to £114.3 million is required by the nationalised Perkinson Marine Port Glasgow to complete the vessels. Despite our efforts, it has proved difficult to identify how the vast sums of public money have been spent to deliver vessels 801 and 802 from the inception of the project in 2015 up to the present day, he said. The committee appreciates that you are not involved in the operation of the yard until February 2022. However, it is recognised that in addition to your insights from being in post for almost a year at the yard, your wealth of experience in the construction and marine manufacturing industries may enable you to offer a perspective on how this money could be accounted for. When Mr McCall's FMEL entered administration in August 2019, it had received £83.25 million in milestone payments from CMAL and £45 million in loan payments from the Scottish Government, yet the vessels were largely incomplete. MSPs in the Public Audit Committee launched an inquiry after a damning report from Audit Scotland about the process of awarding the ferries contract and the subsequent arrangements for delivery. Its probe found that ministers went ahead to the contract despite concerns raised by CMAL over the lack of financial guarantees that placed them at risk. The auditor's examination of the issues said there was no documented evidence to confirm why Scottish ministers were willing to accept the risks of awarding the contract despite the concerns. The Auditor-General made inquiries as MSPs sought to establish where FMEL spent the £128.25 million 
of public money but got no joy from the state-controlled shipyard company. Mr Boyle said FMEL spending had been out with the scope of his previous examination as it did not include private sector organisations. He didn't explore his right of access to the records now the shipyard film was nationalised. He said, Ferguson Marine Port Glasgow, FMPG, has advised us that holds the FML, FMEL's records as required by the sale and purchase agreement between the two bodies. FMPG advised that these records exist in both digital and hard copy forms, but they are not organised or categorised. The sale and purchase agreement does not require FMPG to review these records and FMPG has informed us that it has no plans to do so. It has emerged as he has told the MSPs, FMPG is therefore not aware of what information exists and indeed whether this information will explain how FMEL spent £128.25 million. Audit Scotland and its its, in its inquiries had looked at what happened to a £30 million loan provided by the Scottish Government to FMEL. But the watchdog said that while consultants PricewaterhouseCoopers was providing the Scottish Government with reports on FMEL spending, they did not go into detail where the money went, so were unable to trace exactly how that money was spent and what progress was made on the vessels as a result. Watchdog officials say that without a builder's refund guarantee in place, there was no link between the payments that seem worth making and the quality of the build. Mr Boyle has previously said that the lack of a link between milestone payments and quality of progress was the industry norm for shipbuilding contracts, but was said to be at odds with other large public sector infrastructure contracts. In response, Mr Tyman said he understood that the files and other information that related to the stage payments paid to FMEL for the construction of the two vessels rested with CMAL. We have not sought to evaluate the old FMEL files because they do not add value to the planning or budgeting work still needed to complete the vessels, which is where we are directing our efforts for the earliest completion, he said. And that report was by Martin Williams. From the Herald, Scotland, Tuesday the 20th of December 2022, from the news section, NHS Scotland medic shortage, enough to staff large hospital. Report by Helen McArdle. The true number of consultancy vacancies in NHS Scotland is more than double what officials' figures suggest, according to a new analysis. Figures obtained under the Freedom of Information by BMA Scotland point to a vacancy rate of 14.3% compared to the 6.2% set out in official statistics. The data suggests that health service is struggling with a short call equivalent to 937 full-time consultants, enough doctors to staff a large hospital. According to official statistics, the figure was just under 393 as of September the 30th this year. The trade union has previously voiced concerns that the way vacancies are counted downplays the situation on the front line. In a number of cases, Posts can be empty but would not meet the criteria to be included in vacancy statistics. This includes posts which are temporarily filled by locums, which are vacant but have not yet been advertised, or which have been unfilled for so long that recruitment efforts have been scrapped. BMA Scotland asked all 14 health boards for details of all vacancies, including those which would normally be excluded in the workforce statistics provided by NHS Education for Scotland, NES. 
Official statistics also show that spending on locum doctors cost NHS Scotland £102 million in the year to March 2022, compared to £67 million in 2013-14. Dr Alan Robertson, chair of the BMA Scottish Consultants Committee, said, Consultant vacancies across Scotland remain worryingly high. These latest figures are not surprising, but I find myself increasingly frustrated that the Scottish Government is not revealing the true extent of them in the official stats. We are in the midst of a consultant recruitment and retention crisis. This year, we have seen increased agency spending on locum doctors, suggesting that finding permanent staff to fill the gaps is proving to be significantly challenging and is a cause for huge concern. And yet, we keep hearing the NHS staffing levels are at a record high, but to repeat this over and over to staff on the ground who are depleted, exhausted and facing burnout is not just demoralising, but incredibly insulting. Staff are working flat out, doing absolutely everything they can to cope with the rising demand which is spiralling out of control, but I cannot be any clearer when I say that just because there are more people in the payroll than before does not mean that there is enough. The consultant workforce has been stretched to its limit over the past few years and staff shortages are affecting the ability of doctors to deliver the high quality patient care they strive for. PMA Scotland has announced plans to ballot junior doctors Junior doctors on strike action in January amid a row over pay. They have been offered a 4.5% uplift in line with the recommendations of the UK's independent pay review body, but this compares to 7.5% the Scottish Government has agreed with some other NHS staff. The starting salary for a junior doctor is around £27,600. No decision has yet been taken by BMA Scotland on whether to ballot consultants in industrial action. The starting salary for consultants is around £91,000, but senior clinicians are disproportionately affected by costly pension charges, which have been blamed for exacerbating workforce shortages by driving medics into early retirement. Dr Robertson said the medical workforce is running on empty. He added, The impact of these ongoing vacancies in staff working in the service is profound, and there should be serious concerns over their well-being as we enter what is a notoriously difficult period. Indeed, we seem to be in a perpetual winter right now and things are not going to get any better any time soon. The Scottish Government has stressed that NHS consultant workforce has grown by 32% over the past 10 years to a record 6,032 by the end of September this year. And that report is by Helen McCardo. Recorded from the Herald on the 20th of December 2022. From the sports section, recorded by Amy. Celtic confirm Ibrox ticket allocation for Rangers New Year Clash by David Irvin. Celtic have revealed they have received an away allocation of 708 tickets for the New Year fixture against Rangers. Ange Postacoglu's side take on Rangers at Ibrox on Monday, January 2nd, and just over 700 Celtic supporters will be inside the stadium for the match, with home supporters dwarfing the limited away allocation. The club confirmed the news this afternoon via the official Celtic FC ticket social media accounts. A short statement confirmed tickets for the away match versus Rangers on Monday 2nd of January are now on sale to eligible STH season ticket holders. The club received an allocation of 708 tickets for this match. In a lengthy Twitter thread on tickets and qualifying factors for supporters to purchase match briefs, the club also confirmed a price point of £52. Away allocations for matches between Rangers and Celtic have been slashed in recent seasons, 
with both clubs reducing the number of away fans attending the hotly anticipated derby clashes. Celtic previously had fans housed in the Brim Lone End Ibrox, with a much larger Ranger support also inside Parkhead for matches in previous years. However, the limited ticket allocations have continued for the match between the clubs at Ibrox in January. Outlining criteria for fans to purchase an away ticket, a Celtic FC Tickets Twitter thread explained, Tickets for this match are on sale to season ticket holders based on the following criteria. A random ballot among season ticket holders who have attended 42 or more away games over seasons 2021-2022, and 18-19. It continued, Fixers against Aberdeen, Ross County, Rangers and semi-finals finals are not taken into consideration within the criteria. Our fixtures with Dundee United on 5th of December 2021 and Hearts on 26th of January 2022 are also not taken into consideration. Tickets are priced at £52 per ticket. Eligible season ticket holders can purchase tickets for this match until 2pm Friday 23rd of December. Please note, with ongoing mail strikes, Tickets are available to be purchased with two options for delivery. Collection from Ticket Office, Special Delivery Next Day Service, £8.10 per delivery. That article was by David Urban. Recorded from the Herald on the 20th of December 2022. From the Sports Section, recorded by Amy. Finn Russell agrees to join Bath after next year's World Cup by the Herald Sport. Bath have signed Scotland and British and Lions... Irish Lions, fly half Finn Russell. The Gallagher Premiership Club did not specify Russell's length of contract, but has been reported to be worth around £1 million a year. Bath said he will join them after next year's World Cup, ending a successful spell with French top 14 club Racing 92. And it represents a major coup for Bath, with Russell adding further stardust to a squad recently bolstered by the arrivals of Wasps back row forward, Alfie Barbary, plus England internationals Ollie Lawrence and Ted Hill from Worcester. Russell's ball-playing skills and creativity will bring another dimension to a squad making rapid strides under new head of rugby, Johan van Graam. Russell has won 65 caps and made his Lions test debut against South Africa last year. He was also part of the Lions' 2017 tour to New Zealand. He joined Paris-based racing in 2018 and was a driving force behind them reaching the Heineken Champions Cup final two years later, when they lost to Exeter. I know players at Bath who speak highly of the environment and the direction the club is going is in something I want to be a part of, Russell said. I've enjoyed my time at Racing 92 and have learned a lot. Now is the right time for a new challenge in a new league with the aim of moving Bath back to the top of the Premiership and competing for domestic and European titles. Van Grant added... Finn is a world-class player who will significantly add to our squad on and off the field. To be able to attract players of Finn's quality to Bath Rugby is a credit to how far we have come as a club and a group since July. We look forward to welcoming his experience, leadership and expertise. That article was by The Herald Sport. And that was this week's The Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre currently recorded from our volunteers' homes with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.